If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for 1 Samuel chapter 25 tonight. 1 Samuel 25. All right, so um, really quickly as we get ready for 1 Samuel 25, one of the things that I want to share as we set up is um, the Bible talks about for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, there's a term, a New Testament term that identifies who we are in Jesus. Now, there's lots of those terms. So if I just asked you which one it is, that's not really a fair question. Um, but it, it is, we are called the bride of Christ. It's one of the New Testament terms for the men in here and the women in here. We are all called the bride of Christ. And so if, 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 if us men can be the bride of Christ, you women can be the sons of God, because that's another term that we're called sons of God. So as the bride of Christ, the, the picture, the biblical picture is that Jesus, as our groom, as the groomsman, he, he one day, the Bible says, is going to come for his bride. Now, now, us as the bride of Christ, there's a beautiful biblical picture, a model of a Jewish wedding that, that's a prophetic model of Jesus returning for his bride. The model is the way that God set up in Jewish cultures and customs to this day, the way that, and, and probably more so in ancient customs, um, but, but still somewhat followed today as much as possible. But in a Jewish wedding, that most of the, um, there were arranged marriages, and then they, would, they, they could arrange the marriage, like Joseph and Mary, Joseph and Mary, the Bible says they were betrothed to be married. They, they could have been betrothed. Their parents could have made the arrangement and agreement when they were like in kindergarten. Can you imagine being like in first grade and telling your buddies, hey, that's my wife over there, you know? And, and, and then you go through this long betrothal period. And then eventually you get to what's more like our engagement period. And when they get engaged, then, then the husband goes and he begins to prepare a house that, that him and the bride will live in. And the father, who is the patriarch of the house, is the only one who knows when the, wedding day it is, when the wedding day is. And everybody has to be ready. And so for a season, the, the groom is preparing the house. And oftentimes in, in Middle Eastern cultures, to this day when you go to Israel, you'll see houses built. And they built them all with flat roofs. And on top of the roof is long pieces of rebar sticking out on top of the roof. And you're like, why, why did they leave a bunch of rebar sticking out of that brand new house? The reason is because when the kids grow up and move out, guess where they go? They build a second house on top, and they live together as a family, and the next generation just lives in the same house. A lot of uh, your Asian cultures do the same thing. They live together for generations and pull their money together and save their money. And so this is a custom. So the, the son would be building a house, preparing it for his bride. And one day, unbeknownst to the son or the bride or anybody, only the father knows. And Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, only my father in heaven. So one day, the father is going to say to Jesus, his son, son, go get your bride. And then that's a model because the, the father, the patriarch of the family, would, in a Jewish wedding, he tells his son on a day that he picks, nobody knows, and he goes and he tells his son, today is the day, son, go get, your, go get your bride. And then the son would go get his bride, and they would march back, and the wedding ceremony would take seven days. The wedding festivities would last seven days, seven years in the tribulation period, seven days of celebration in this Jewish wedding. Now, one of the things that we see biblically um, throughout the Old Testament, which would have been completely foreign to a Jew to this day, is that many of the patriarchs or many of the most important people in the Old Testament, for one reason or another, took a Gentile bride. Now, Jews are not supposed to take Gentile brides. It's forbidden. It's forbidden. And one of the biggest problems that Israel had throughout all of its history was when the people in the nation of Israel, when the, when, the, when the men of God went outside of their faith, went outside to take a Gentile bride, it usually caused problems. You think of Samson and his Gentile brides and his problems. And you think of um, um, Barak and, and the prophecies and, and um, I'm trying to think of the name, but you, you remember there's the story of Balaam, that's what I'm thinking of, Balaam and, ba and Barak. Balaam was a, was a Jewish prophet, and a king, a pagan king came to him and said, I'll pay you big money if you'll curse the nation of Israel. And Balaam said, I can only say what God puts in my heart. I can, I'll open my mouth and begin to prophesy, but only what comes out is what God gives me. And so they go up, and, and Balaam opens his mouth and begins to prophesy over the, the nation of Israel. And what happened? Only blessing came out. And, and the, the pagan king tells Balaam, he says, 
you, you fool, I can make you very, very rich if you do this. And so Balaam goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, can I do this? And the Lord says, no. And he goes back and, and, he, and he keeps asking the Lord and asking the Lord. And, and then the, the king is putting pressure on him and offering him lots of money. So he tries a second time and only blessing comes out. And then he goes back to the king and he wants to cash in on this reward that the pagan king is offering Balaam. And do you remember the story? Jesus says in the book of Revelation, you know, cursed is the, is the doctrine of Balaam. So the doctrine of Balaam was this king, this Hebrew king. He went back to the pagan king and he said, I cannot curse the people of Israel. He said, every time I open my mouth to curse them, only blessings come out. But here's what you can do to curse them. Send your, your women from, from your pagan women from your tribe, scantily clad through the camps of Israel and have them seduce the young men in the camp of Israel and lie with them. And then when these young men of Israel go into these pagan women, God will then have no choice but to curse them for their sin. And that's exactly what the pagan king did. He sent the young girls scantily clad through the camp of Israel. The young men were attracted to their flesh and they sinned against God. And then God had to judge and curse his own people. So you see that curse throughout the Old Testament um, over and over and over again, lots of cases. But, but again, coincidentally enough, interestingly enough, there are um, many times where it's sanctified and it's blessed and it's God-ordained where, where God sees fit that, that, they, that, that one of the Jewish patriarchs takes a Gentile bride. Can you think of any famous Gentile brides in the Old Testament? Well, there's, there's, there's lots, but um, the, I think, you know, we think of Rahab. Rahab was, was from Jericho and she was a pagan and a Gentile. And, and, and at the time that she was helping the spies, she was still the harlot Rahab. Well, the interesting thing about the harlot Rahab is she goes on and she becomes in the genealogy of Jesus. And so at some point, she, she left her old lifestyle. She got her life right with God. She got married to a Jewish husband and, and had kids. And those kids had kids that had kids that had Jesus. And so Rahab is this Gentile who, woman who is in the line of the genealogy of Jesus. And then we have, um, you know, Zipporah, the wife of Moses. And Moses is the one that God brought the law to. Do you remember when Moses left Egypt, he was wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years and he took a Gentile bride. And then we have Joseph and Joseph was in Egypt when God brought his bride. And Joseph's um, bride was an Egyptian Gentile bride who had two kids who became the fathers of two of the main tribes of Israel to this day. The tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh were the two kids of Joseph, which are one of the two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so part of what God did was he built into the Old Testament um, cases of a Gentile bride. And part of the reason that we see that is so that one day for the Jew, they, they, they wouldn't think it's so strange and so hard to believe that Jesus or Messiah himself would take a Gentile bride. And that Gentile bride is you and I, the bride of Christ. And so we, we kind of brings us into our story today in chapter 25, beginning in verse number one, it says, then Samuel died. Somebody say, "Uh uh-oh. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him in his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So that's just kind of all it really says about Samuel. Now, Samuel was um, a prophet in Israel for many years and, and used of God. And this comes to the end of Samuel's life and Samuel dies. And then in verse 2, it says, Now there was a man in Moan, different story now, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich and he had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil. So you know the Bible cannot exaggerate. And for the Bible to say about Abigail that she was beautiful, the Jews have in the, in the Talmud, in the Jewish traditions, that five of the, they have the five most beautiful women in, the, in human history, and they have Abigail listed as one of the five most beautiful women in, in history. And the Bible says of um, several other Old Testament women that they were beautiful, Rachel and Sarah, and there's two others I can't remember where God records that these women um, were very beautiful. And so Abigail... According to the Lord in the Bible, it was a beautiful woman. She was smart. 
because she had good understanding. So not only was she beautiful, she, had, she was wise. But her husband, the man Nabal, was harsh and evil in his doings. And he was of the house of Caleb. Now, Nabal's name means fool. So I don't know if you, you know, anybody, again, this is not a name that you name your sons, Nabal. Nabal, your son, fool. So um, Nabal in the story, as we go through here, we're going to point out a couple for you, but there's likenesses where King David is a, is, a, is a type of Jesus. You know, Joshua was a type of Jesus. Joseph was a type of Jesus. And as we go through the stories and we look, we see these similarities with blood and wine and three days and three nights and all of these different key factors in these stories that line up exactly with a future story of Messiah and of Jesus. And all the way through the Old Testament, it's about Jesus. And so here we're going to see this story of Abigail, really. I think the focus is, is about Abigail. And she's a woman, and Abigail in the story would be like you and I. We have a, we have a pagan a, a husband who's, who's a fool, and, you know, it's a picture of us in the world. And then eventually, you know, spoiler alert, she's, she, her husband is going to die and she's going to leave this fool and she's going to be the wife of the king. And Jesus is our king. The son of, son of David is our Lord. And so we see all these similarities of us and how we were while we were in the world before we came to Jesus. And it's this kind of word picture, life picture. The amazing thing about God in the Old Testament is that he, um, he takes the lives of people and in their very lives, in the very decisions they make, in, in the people they marry, in their names, in the choices they make, he tells a, pu- a perfect and beautiful picture of things to come, pictures of Jesus, pictures of what your life and my life is going to be like on this side of the cross. And it says, then David heard in the wilderness, verse fall, that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young man, go up to Carmel, to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace to you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. So very um, um, nice and generous greeting. And he says in verse 7, now I have heard that you, you have shears, your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever comes out of your hand to your servants as to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all the words in in the name of David and waited. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his own master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men whom I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. And David said to his men, Every man gird his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. And so this was kind of a, a common practice. We, we, we kind of cheated ahead a little bit, and we studied a couple Sundays ago, 1 Samuel chapter 30. So if we get to it tonight, we'll just kind of go through it quickly. Um, but the 400 men went, and 200 men stayed behind with the supplies. And, and David says that, that when we go and, and the spoils of war, those that go and those that stay behind share in the spoils. And, and so in ministry, and, and it became such a decree that when, when David decreed it, the word of God says that even it, as it is to this day. So it became a statute in Israel among God's people that they would share alike in the spoils. And it's a biblical principle that we share, right? You guys remember it? That whether you, you go on the mission field or whether you support a missionary, you share in the spoils alike. So your heavenly reward, and somewhere there's a record in heaven, and somewhere, you know, somebody's going to approach you in heaven, and, you know, they're going to thank you for, for coming to Georgia or coming to Serbia or going to Malawi, Africa, and, and, and sharing the gospel with them. And, you know, as you say, I've never, I never went to Serbia or Georgia or Malawi, Africa, and, and but yet... You, you, you share in the rewards of that salvation because we sent those that went. And so these 400 guys stay. David's pretty angry. Nabal disrespects him. And Nabal says, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to help you. And so David says to his men, which was their custom, he says, boys, get on your swords. We're going to go to work tonight. 
And then verse 14, now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to, to us, and, were, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. And so the young men give testimony to Abigail that what David said was true, that David's men, um, even the 600 men, you know, war, men of war who would have been around them, they never once took our stuff. They were nice to us. They didn't steal any of our sheep. Everything was good. They always guarded us and protected us from any outside dangers. And that, you know, what David said to, to, to Nabal was true. And in verse 16, it says, they were all a wall to us both by night and day. And all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is not such a, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So even the young men were like, this guy is so foolish that nobody can speak wisdom to him. And he's so greedy and such a scoundrel that none of us can go to him and, and talk some sense into him. And then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine. Whenever you see bread and wine together, it's always a reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisin and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she, as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. Now they were coming down her toward her with the intent to do what? They were on their way to kill, right? They were, they were girded with, with battle array and they were ready to come and kill Nabal and his, and, and his men and take everything. And she said to her servants, or I'm sorry, um, in verse 21, now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all the belongings to him and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David said, I'm going to kill every single one of them. So David was scorned. David is really in a place in his life right now. We're going to see kind of um, really highlighted in the next couple of chapters that David was in a low spot in life. David was making a living by raiding. He was, he was killing everybody in the villages as he went through and raided these villages because he didn't want word to get back to, to where he was. And so David was serious and he meant it and he was upset. He was disrespected and he was going to kill every one of the men. Um, and he said, you know, moreover is going to happen. Let me die and all my men if we don't fulfill this word and by morning every one of them will be dead and then she said um in verse 23 when abigail saw david she dismounted quickly from the donkey fell on her face before david and she bowed down to the ground so highlight number 23 so a couple of things that i told you guys about as we go through you can um, highlight them so one of the things that we do in following jesus is we fall down um, on our face and we worship, we bow down to the ground. Now, we don't make it a practice in, 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 in our Christian walk, um, necessarily in our public settings, to bow down our face before the Lord, but it's definitely a good practice for us to practice in a private setting. If you, you know, in your prayer time at home, you know, I don't know how you pray. You know, for me, I try to pray very practically. Sometimes if I just kneel on the bed, Oftentimes I can find a way to fall asleep kneeling on the bed or like my mind can wander. So, you know, you guys know my trick. It's no secret. My trick is I get in the jacuzzi to pray. And um, if I fall asleep, it's usually not for very long um, if I want to live. So um, or walking and praying is a good idea. But, you know, um, in, in Islam and, and we don't see it too much here. I don't remember ever really seeing it. But if you travel and you go anywhere else in the world, you know, even in Israel and other places, there's a Muslim call to prayer five times a day. And no matter where they are, so they'll be, we'll be in a shopping mall area. And at the Muslim call to prayer, um, the exits will start be flooding with, with guys that are coming out because they'll come out to the exits or the streets or wherever they are if they have a place and they lay their mats on the ground. And they get down and they, they kneel on their knees and they bow their face and their hands to the ground. And 
I was talking to a Muslim one time and he, he told me that they're more spiritual than we are because they do this practice. And because they pray five times a day, and in, in the Jewish culture, Daniel prayed three times a day, and they said, oh yeah, we got that beat. We pray five times a day, so we're more spiritual than you. And they, they bow down, and you know, they put their face to the ground. And you know, Jesus said, when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, to go into your closet, close the door, and, and don't let, uh, and when your father, who sees you in secret, will reward you and openly. So the reality is nobody should really know how much we pray or if you pray or if you bow down or how you pray because really we're told as Christians that we're supposed to do it in private anyways. The whole, the whole display of someone coming publicly and bowing down and making this, this, this public display, if people walk by and say, oh, wow, look at you, you're bowing down before the Lord and you're praying, you're so holy. Jesus said, I hope you enjoy that because that's all the reward you're going to get is the praise of that person. But if you do it alone and only God sees you, then your reward waits for you in heaven. But, you know, the word worship is actually, is what it means. You know, it's, it's the idea, and I think it is, it's at sometimes like, you know, in your, your private life and in your devotional life to bow your face to the ground because worship is, is to prostrate oneself before a deity or a God. That's what the definition of the word means. And to prostrate one is, you know, hands to the ground, face to the ground, forehead to the ground, nose to the ground. And so not really a comfortable way to pray. I wouldn't recommend staying there very long. But, um, you know, what's cool too about Jesus is that Jesus is more interested in that you're bowed down this way in your heart. So you can be in any posture you want. And if your heart is prostrated, if your heart is bowed down before the Lord, Jesus honors that just as much as you getting down and actually putting your face on the ground. You know, there's nothing, you don't get any brownie points for it unless it's just a true reflection of your heart. But, but she bows down and she worships. Again, we're looking at, at Abigail as a picture of us coming to Jesus, leaving uh, the world, a pagan husband, a, a life with a fool and the things of Satan and coming unto the king of kings, the son of David. And so one of the, the things that we can highlight here was that she bowed down. You know, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. You know, we talk about this often, right? Because I don't care how bad or how good you are, one day you're going to see Jesus face to face and, and he's not going to force you, but your natural spontaneous reaction is going to be to bow down when you see the glory of Jesus standing before you and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So when Hitler died and he saw Jesus, he said, oh, Jesus is Lord to his chagrin, but not unto salvation. Didn't change his salvation. It's not going to change his eternal destiny, um, but he would have recognized and submitted. So the wisdom is for those of us who willingly bow down now and confess with the mouth. And in verse 24, it says, so she fell at his feet and said, oh, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. So she begins to pray. She takes responsibility for her own actions. She doesn't say, you know, that, that you know, she, she says, it's, let it be on me. I'll take full responsibility for the choices that Nabal made and what happened in the world. And um, she repents in that, in that instance. And then in verse 25, she says, Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for his name is, so is he, fool. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your, I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal, fools. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will continually make for my Lord, an, en an enduring house, because the Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in, your, in you throughout your days. Now, you know the word Lord is used there a ton. When you see it L-O-R-D and it's all lowercase, she's talking about David and it's a term of respect that she's using and calling David Lord. It's something that 
um, you know, continued for hundreds of thousands of years, right? Where even in, in, in British cultures and, you know, middle uh, ages cultures, everybody was a Lord. And, a, and so she calls David Lord. Abraham or Sarah called Abraham Lord. And then when you see the capital L-O-R-D there, she's talking of Yahweh or Jehovah, the Y-H-V-H. Whenever you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Bible, that's the, the name of God, Y-H-V-H, um, the official name of God. We don't know how to pronounce it. Some pronounce it Jehovah, but Jehovah has to be wrong because there's no J sound in Hebrew. Some say Yahweh, maybe a little closer. And then it says um, in verse 28, Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because the Lord, David, fights the battles of Yahweh, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord David shall be bound in the bundle of the living, with the Lord Yahweh, your God, and in the lives of your enemies, and he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. So she recognizes the father in all of this. She recognizes the, the will of God and the, um, the divine um, sovereignty of God over this whole situation. And then she says in verse 30, And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you as ruler over Israel. So she says that, you know, she understands that one day David is going to be king, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you may you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord David, then remember your maidservant. Verse 31. So, um... Um, Abigail being a beautiful woman um, and David um, no doubt attracted to her later the story's going to go and thankfully you know there was no funny business going on during this time she was a married woman she behaved herself wisely and she's even telling David that you know when this situation dies and and you know if you have grace today one day you're going to be king and when you're king please don't go back and you know, and remember that you owe Nabal some kind of um, debt of of doing him harm, that even in the future that you would forgive my husband Nabal. So she's still um, lobbying as as a good wife, as a good person for her husband Nabal. And then she tells David to remember her um, in, in that time, remember that her maidservant. And it says, then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet, meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she brought him and said to her, Go up in peace. To your house, see, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. So David received those things and he blessed her. And in verse 36, Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. That means he was drunk. Well, the next line says he was drunk. I, don't have, I guess it doesn't have to mean it. For he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. And so Nabal, who is so foolish to not even perceive how he's offended David, the king, and that David was on his way and doesn't have any idea what Nabal, or I'm sorry, what Abigail just saved them of. And he's so arrogant that, that he's, rather than just, you know, making some precautions just in case, or we have this situation that we should deal with, that we should look into. Instead, he goes home and he throws a party and he gets so drunk that his wife can't even talk to him because he won't remember in the morning. And so um, verse 37 says, So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. 
And it happened after about 10 days that the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, struck Nabal and he died. So for whatever reason, the Lord judges Nabal for his foolishness and the Lord takes his life. And so, you know, one of the the patterns of the Old Testament is that the judgment of God is very swift. And and God oftentimes um, brings about his justice in these Old Testament stories on a different kind of time frame than he does today. Today, we don't necessarily um, always see the justice of God happen so quickly to the point where we, we kind of long for God's justice. And we, and we, you know, we, we feel like, you know, God, when are you going to bring justice? And why are you not going to deal with this person? But on this side of the cross, God just has chosen a, a different pattern, a pattern of grace and of mercy. And God one day will bring justice. But at the same time, you know, the, the mercies of God are, are so that people will get saved. You know, and had God brought justice to me when I deserved it, before I got saved, you know, but, but, but by the grace and the patience of God, he waited for me. And sometimes, you know, we see situations and we see lives and you just wish God would, you know, exact his justice. And, and then down the road, that person gets saved or their life changes or God had a plan for their life. And in his mercy and his grace, he waits for them. And so um, the long suffering of God and the justice of God that, that some might get saved. But not with Nabal. Nabal dies in verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, what do you think David did? Nobody? <laughs> he said, where is that woman? <laughs> Go get me that woman. <laughs> so David wanted Abigail, and uh, without a doubt, he was impressed by her beauty. And uh, But you know what's kind of cool? Like, I, I read a commentary on this, and somebody was saying that, you know, um, a- Abigail behaved herself wisely. And, and again, there's no hint of any kind of funny business or, you know, anything going on as a married woman. She was married. David didn't mess with her as a married woman. He didn't break any rules or laws, except for that one little line where um, some of the Jewish scholars say that, you know, maybe she was being a little over the top or, or maybe acting a little inappropriate as a married woman when she told David at the end there, remember me. Remember me when you come back. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the good thing is, like I said, they, they, they honored the Lord and they didn't behave foolishly and they didn't get in the flesh. And then God dealt with Nabal and killed him. And so um, David heard Nabal was dead and he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. So David didn't waste no time, and he sent a proposal. How, how much of a baller are you? You don't even go yourself to propose. He just sent somebody. Go tell her to be my wife, and brought her some flowers or something. And um, You know, but the, by the grace of God, you know, David blessed the Lord because he didn't go and kill all the other men, and the, the other guys didn't have to die, and God dealt with just the fool himself, Nabal. And when the servants of David had, came, had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you and asked you to become his wife. And then she arose, bowed her face on the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servant of my Lord. And Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey and attended by five of her maids, maidens. And she followed the messenger of David and became his wife. So David also took, unfortunately, Ahinoam of Jezreel. So both of them were his wives. So Saul had given... But Saul had given Michael, the daughter of David's wife, to Palti, the son of Lahish, who was from Galilee. So by this point in David's young life, he had not become king yet. Abigail was his first wife. And then shortly after, Abigail was his second wife. And then he takes Anohim as his second wife. Okay, okay, so Michael would have been his first wife. But um, he didn't have Michael. He, never, he wasn't with him. Um, she was gone. So then he really had... Um, Abigail kind of as his first wife and then he takes shortly after a second wife but that that woman Michael whom Saul promised to David he never gave her to David he gave her to somebody else and the way the story is going to progress is eventually David's going to go get her because she was rightfully his poor story because this guy in this picture the Bible paints tells this story of David going to get her and her husband following behind her with his head down his arms flat crying (laughs) following her in this sad story of, of this wife that, 
you know, but David, who, who Michael was promised to him. And then later, um, if you'll remember, what happens is Michael becomes a thorn in David's side and a flesh. And she does, she's not a good wife to him. And she's, um, I don't know what the right word is, but she's trouble. And David brings the Ark of the Covenant back. And he, he's in a linen ephod, like he's in his wife beater and his boxers. And he's dancing in the streets and worshiping the Lord. And Abigail gets very offended because she's haughty. And she's, her father was the King Saul. And, you know, she doesn't think that a king should behave that way. And David was just being undignified before the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And Abigail said, oh, wasn't the king lovely today in his ephod dancing in the streets? And from that moment on, David never went into her again. And he didn't divorce her. It wasn't the custom, but he, he never went into her again. But unfortunately, one of the rules for the kings was that the kings were not to multiply wives to themselves, they were not to multiply horses to themselves, and they were not to multiply silver and gold to themselves. And David and his son Solomon did all three. Um, David more so on the wives part, but Solomon uh, really capitalized on all three, a thousand wives, horse stables that were the most impressive horse stables in the world, and so much silver and gold that they stopped counting it. But God didn't want the king's hearts to turn towards any of these things. You know, and again, I, I think it probably doesn't need mention, but we'll mention it one more time. The Bible um, records polygamy and the kings of Israel and the different places in the Old Testament, but the Bible never, not one time, approves of it or condones it. It's recorded because it happened, but it wasn't prescribed, it wasn't allowed, and it's not condoned in the Old or the New Testament. But when it happened, God recorded it. Now, chapter 26, 27, 28, and 29, um, more 27, 28, 29, 26 kind of sets it up, but um, this is the lowest point of David's life. David is in a bad way. He's running from Saul. Do you remember last week, if you're here last Wednesday, um, Saul was in the, in the cave and David went in and cut, cut his robe, the corner of his robe off, and they had the conversation. Well, there, David's in a season right now where he's running from Saul, and now we get what's going to sound like a story that we already read, um, but it's a different time. It's a second time, another time where... Um, David spares Saul's life, very similar to the last story with a few different details, but we'll just go through it quickly. Uh, it says, now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is David not hiding in the hills of, ha- of, of Hachilah, opposite of Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite of Jesmon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. Now, therefore, David sent out spies and understood that Saul indeed came out. Hey, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 54. One of the things that's, that's kind of cool as we go through First and Second Samuel is that David was, um, he was the mighty psalmist. And when you see, because the Psalms, you don't really have to guess or be a, you know, a Bible scholar on, on, on all of these. And I like the one like Psalm 54, because oftentimes the Psalms just tell us exactly what was going on when David wrote these Psalms. But you know, what's happening with, I thought was kind of cool was that um, David is very busy right now. Things are going on. He's fighting, he's battling, he's, he's moving, he's doing all this stuff. And in the middle of all these like stories that are going on in David's life, we come to the Psalms and we see we're nestled in the middle of that. David writes this amazing Psalm. So even in a time of work and a time of trouble, we see that David's strength was him, him worshiping the Lord, composing music, writing songs, articulating. In all the Psalms, obviously, David had a gift that, that the Spirit of God and the Father revealed these things to David. But in chapter... Um, 26, we get the last psalm that David records for about a year and a half period of his life. By the time we get to 27, 28, and 29, no record of David recording psalms, no record of David praying, no record of David, what the Bible says, inquiring of the Lord or any growth in his life. But in Psalm 54, look what it says, answered prayer for deliverance from adversaries to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites 
went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? So we just read that in Psalm 26. The Ziphites, for whatever reason, were tattletales, and they went to David and they told on him. And so we have this psalm that now becomes for you and I a place that we turn to if if something like that is going on in our lives. Somebody in your life has told on you. Somebody in your life has has done something to you where you're feeling chased, you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling low. And so David comes to these psalms, and all the psalms are this way, written in and David didn't write all 150 of them, but he wrote many of them. And many of them have these captions. And, you know, there's even guides that tell you, like, if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling low, if you're feeling chased, if you're feeling lied to, if you're, you're going through this season or that season, that this was the, the meditation of worship that came out of David's heart. And that you're to read the Psalms to encourage you. You're to read the Psalms as God's pill, God's prescription for that which ails you. You know, and, and, and today we, 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 we take pills for everything before we come to the Psalms, but the Psalms are the pharmacy of the Bible. They're God's prescription for um, all and many things that ail us. And oftentimes, you know, we want to start there. We want to be in the Psalms. The Psalms are a place of encouragement. Psalms are a, 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 a cure for depression, for anxiety, for loneliness, for um, all these things. And in this particular 154, David's and, and why were these guys telling on him? Like the, David was helping these guys. In the last story, do you guys remember, um, David just went down and saved the city. He went and fought. He brought his men and they fought against some bad guys. And David was hanging out in that city after he just saved the city. And then he prayed and he said, God, will, will these men tell Saul that I'm here? And what did God tell David? He said, yeah, they're going to tell on you. They're going to rat you out. Really, God, after I just saved him? Yeah, after you just saved him, they're going to rat you out. So, you know, so that was, that was one we picked up last week. I think it was Psalm 42. Oh, no, 42 comes later. So it says um, in Psalm 54, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to my words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them, Selah. Selah, whenever you see that in the psalm, it means to stop, meditate on it, or think about it. Selah was a, was a pause in the music note for, for reflection, for time of contemplation and meditation. So Selah is something that you, you see often in the psalms in, in a time of meditation and of, of prayer. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eyes have seen its desire upon my eyes. And so this was the meditation of David's heart um, during 1 Samuel 26, when he was a little discouraged because the Ziphites were um, running to Saul to try to get David killed. And then in verse uh, 6, it says, Then David answered and said to the said to Amalek, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people lay all around him. Now, Abner is um, Saul's general. He's Saul's main warrior, and Abner was a fierce warrior in the records and the annals of, of Israeli, of Jewish Old Testament history. Um, Abner was a, was a mighty warrior. And so he's there. He's Saul's right-hand guy. David and, and his men are one guy. They go down while he's sleeping. And the interesting thing is, is that the Bible, for whatever reason, is constantly mentioning Saul and his beloved spear. This spear is in all of these stories. Every time you see Saul, he has this spear. He's constantly throwing this spear. He's already tried to kill David with it twice. He, 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 David wasn't around one day, and remember, he tried to throw the, the spear at who? At his own son, Jonathan. And so, you know, every time you see Saul and this, this beloved spear that he has, so he sleeps, and at night when he sleeps, he sticks it in the ground next to him. In verse 8, it says, Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemies into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. So his, his friend, David's friend Abishai, says, let me kill him. 
says, I'll do it for you, David. I'll take his own spear and I'll, and I'll pin him to the earth and I won't have to hit him a second time. I'll put it through his heart, stick him to the earth and it'll be over and we'll get out of here. And David said in verse nine to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the, somebody? Lord's anointed and be guiltless. We talked about this last week, the position of King David, the position that we, you and I should learn from, even though Saul was a schmuck, even though Saul was not necessarily what we call a good person, David's opinion was, I will not stretch my hand out against the anointed of the Lord. And so Saul being the anointed of the Lord. So listen, if King David wouldn't do it, I would advise you not to do it either. Do not raise your hand against the anointed of the Lord in any way. Let God deal with him as David did. And then in verse 10, David, David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die. He shall go out to battle and perish. And the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let's go. You know, I, I don't know how reaching it in, in it is, but whenever I see these things, obviously I think of Jesus. You know, and Jesus was stuck with a spear in his side and blood and water came out. And so here we have this, this spear and the water together um, as a future picture of the spear that would go into Jesus' side. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So now we get a little kind of insight in the story that God is with David. God is there protecting David and he makes sure that nobody wakes up and he makes sure that everybody stays asleep. So the Lord's protecting him in that moment. And now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill afar off and a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and Abner, the son of Ner saying, do not, do you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy your Lord, the king. So he's calling out Abner, the um, Saul's general. And he's saying, nobody's like you in all of Israel. Nobody's as bad and as tough as you are in all of Israel. And yet, where were you? I could have killed Saul, the king, and you didn't protect him. This thing that you have done is not good. And as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. And then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And, and he said, David, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? And now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. And if the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if, but if it is the children of, it, of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts the partridge of the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and, and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. So he didn't trust Saul. Saul's like, come on down, David. You're right. You got me again, and you spared my life, and I'm not going to hurt you. Come on down. And David's like, yeah, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going anywhere near you. Send one of your young men up, and I'll give it to him. And then Saul basically sums his life up in this last little sentence of Saul. Um, and Saul says, David, I have played the fool. There was something that was, and I, I don't know what it was, but it was going around that was kind of popular for a minute. And you were supposed to uh, sum up your life in six words. And one guy said, or in one sentence or in a short thing, your whole life. One guy said, born bald, six words, born bald, grew hair, bald again. Ellis's life summed up in six words. But, you know, it's actually kind of an interesting little uh, exercise that you had to sum up your life or what would you want it to be in six words. And here's Saul's life. Um, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And it says um, in verse, 
23, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and every, and every faithfulness for the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all this tribulation. And Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son, David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. You know, the thing that, that made David sad in verse 19, you know, David says that for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord. And so the thing that David shares with us here in this chapter that, and we're, we'll close with that. We're done. We'll pick up in 27 next week, but, um, David says that I, I don't get to share in the inheritance of the Lord. What was it in Israel that David was missing out on that was making him sad? Was the worship of God. He didn't get to be in the temple. He didn't go, get to go to church. He didn't get to be around the people of God. He didn't get to, to perform the duties and the, the services of God and to God in the temple and in places of worship. And this is what he tells King Saul. I'm sad today because I'm out here running from you and, and, and I don't get to take part in the inheritance of the Lord. I don't get to take part in the things of the Lord. And that's what, what broke David's heart the most and that he missed the most. Amen? Hey, I did forget to tell you guys that next Wednesday, um, there's no, no Wednesday night services next Wednesday night. So um, just so you know, you can mark your calendar. The Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's, every year that we take that Wednesday off, we'll be back on, I think January 2nd is a Wednesday. We'll be back on January 2nd, but no um, midweek service next week. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. And we're out of time, so we're going to not do a song tonight. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day. And Father, we thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you for King David and his heart. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And Lord, David was a man of, of intense and um, spiritual worship. And he was, he was the greatest um, person who could articulate what his heart felt on paper than any other person and gifted more than any other person in human history to be able to articulate his worship and his feelings. And Lord, you used him as, as the mighty psalmist of Israel. And Lord, in these moments, in these times of, of, of different things that he went through, and he had a hard life and hard seasons of life. And Lord, in every one of those seasons, he pins these beautiful psalms of encouragement and of worship. And so Lord, we thank you for King David, the example that he was. Lord, we thank you that the Bible records all of David's flaws and that David was not a, a perfect person by any means. And yet you were still able to use him in a mighty way. And that should encourage each, each one of us, Lord, that we don't have to be perfect people for you to use us. But God, you do require, and what David did have was a perfect heart, a heart that loved God and a heart that wanted to be used by you. And so, Father, help us to have that heart of David. Help us to learn from his strengths, learn from his mistakes. And God, that you would bless. And Lord, we give you glory and honor. And again, Lord, we pray for um, services this coming week. And Lord, we pray that you would bring people here that could hear the gospel on Christmas Eve and, and on Sunday. And Lord, we, we thank you. And Lord, we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.